0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer
1: flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: FlushCare.com/slash/weightloss.
1: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who
0: knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand
2: human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How you doing there? It's David. It's podcast time. You know the drill. We're trying to make economics that little bit more comprehensible, that little bit more digestible, and that little bit more relevant. Now, you know what we're going to talk about later on? We're going to talk about the economics of Britain. What is the plan in the UK? The UK is our biggest neighbour. It is still one of the biggest economies in the world. And yet, yet, after Brexit, people are scratching their heads saying, well, what's the plan? So we're going to talk to one of the foremost UK economists, a guy called Robert Lind, who worked with me many years ago. John and I have lived in the UK. We have loads of mates in the UK. How are you, head? I'm very good.
2: Well, we're going to get to the Brexit thing if we're not censored.
0: Oh, yes. Do you know that this podcast was not only censored, it was pulled by Apple last week? Unbelievable, isn't it? Unbelievable. The piece on what about Israel. our First Amendment? Our First Amendment, our <laughs> rights. But we must be doing something right if a global multinational tax evader is pulling our content, right? Uh, but I mean, what's the I mean, story? For no reason. The Tom for... Friedman, and, and I thought it was balanced, and lots of people thought it was very balanced. Yeah. And yet, and, and... somebody manually—the interesting thing is—somebody manually in Apple went in and censored it, pulled it out, and made it unavailable.
2: Yeah, it was QAnon. Who's <laughs> QAnon? Oh, is that your your mate? All those guys. No, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Even if it wasn't balanced, and it was balanced, but even if it wasn't, it was an opinion. So somebody came along going, I don't like your opinion. So... You're not going to talk to the world.
0: Apple, will you please come back to us? We've actually asked you why this was censored. Of course, you've run for the hills. Uh, We think we're going to chant the great football hymn at you from the terraces. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. (laughs) John will sing it in A minor, and away we go. And uh, we take it as a term of endearment. We take it as a compliment that you have censored us, but we know where you live.
2: (laughs) And by the way... If you do want to listen to it, Apple is not the only place you can hear it. You can hear it on every other platform from... Much better ones. From <laughs> from Acast to Spotify to Podbean to the whole shebang. Cool. Apple. And it was number 137. 137. 137.
0: Yeah. Israel, Palestine. And John, do you know who else was censored 700 years ago? Who? Where, Dante. Was,
2: was Apple around
0: then? Apple was not around then and it will not be around. But you know what is still around 700 years later? The Divine Comedy, yes. By Dante, yeah. Dante was censored. At Doggy, we're going to be talking about Dante. We're going to be talking about Joyce. Joyce was censored, and we're going to be talking about Yates. Yates was censored. We're all in the censorship game, you know. <laughs> it's true. When you're we're censored, a good club, then, aren't it's it? a very good club. It's a very good club. And you know, who else we've got coming to Doggy. on, Neil Ferguson, historian, Scottish historian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is—he's a guy who divides opinion, right? Divides opinion. Right. Well, that's he good. A very, yeah, very, a very brilliant. But I have known him for many, many years, and he has a very fond place in my heart because the very first time I met him, we were doing a gig together in Southern California, right? Right. Which I'd never been to. Awful place. Jesus, wouldn't go there again.
2: Yeah, there's not really, much to it. Really
0: sacred and awful place. So yeah. there's all these kind of sort of enthusiastic Yanks, and they're all you know being very, very careful with language. Yeah. And Ferguson's from, from Glasgow, so he comes in and we have a chat, and we're having a giggle, we're having a good banter. And uh, he is the, at this stage, he's the, you know, most eminent historian, came out of Oxford, then is in Harvard, all that sort of stuff. So he's taken really, really, really seriously in the States. Right. okay And we're having a giggle at this far end, and the, and the angst are talking seriously about politics. And he just pulls out an app on his phone, which was the funniest app I've ever heard. It was the five most outrageous sectarian Rangers chance. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. The mate from Mrs. Glasgow just sent it to him. So, and they were really outrageous. And I thought, he's all right. The, 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 the professor of history, the biggest brain in the world. And what he actually giggles at is the Rangers chance yeah, from Ibrox. That's brilliant. And on the basis that Rangers won everything this year. Yeah. But he's going to talk, he's got a great book, new book out called Catastrophe, The Politics of Catastrophe. So he'll oh, be right. fascinating. Okay. Again, coming to Doki, it's dokibookfestival.org. Get your tickets. We're talking the 18th of June.
2: Just a quick one on Southern California. While it is a bit of a, as you say, a kind of a bland, saccharine place, I have to say I had a wonderful couple of months there with Shano and Brinzer. Woo! Fantastic place. I like the sound of fantastic- Shano and Brinzer already.
0: <laughs> Great. Great, crack. Well, listen, we should go with our, we should go with Shano, Brinzer, me, you, Ferguson, and our five most outrageous sectarian <laughs> chants from Rangers. In one of those, you know, the, you know the way the Eagles always look good on the Southern Californian Yeah, yeah, thing? yeah, exactly. In an open top He's, car, exactly. except we look really shy. <laughs> yeah. Come on, we go over to England. I'm. I'm by the way, uh, I'm doing this segment for John, who is a property owner in the UK. He's very wealthy. Comes across as, you know, an ordinary lad, but he's ass- he's asseted up yin yang. The yeah, UK. oh yeah,
2: oh yeah. I've got properties all over the place.
0: How's your one bedroom flat in the UK?
2: It's falling apart, I
0: think. <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about the UK. Huge economy. I have a guy who worked with me many years ago. Brilliant, brilliant economist. Robert Lind, Yorkshire man, stranded down in London for a long, long time. But we need to get a handle on the UK because what happened was Brexit happened. There was lots of political shouting and roaring, but nobody actually decided, what does this mean? What's the plan? What is the plan for the UK? Where's the economy going? And what will the UK look like in five to 10 years? So let's go over to the UK and talk to Robert Lind. Now I'm going to talk to a man who I have not seen for maybe 25 years, which is a long, long time. Robert Lind and I were in the trenches together at UBS, which was a big Swiss bank. Uh, It's... Kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Bits of it fell off, and other bits got hived off. But it's been a long time, Robert. How are you, man? I'm very well, David. And you? I'm good five. to see you. Great to see you. I'm in great, great form. Now, let's talk about the UK economy because in Ireland, the UK economy just—it's this huge presence historically. It is still absolutely significant in certain sectors. Sometimes, because of Brexit many people, myself included, have said, well, it's not that important anymore because we export more to the rest of the world. However, it's still a huge player. Tell me about the UK. What is going on in the UK? What should we be looking out for? What's the growth rate, et cetera? But also, what's the plan, the Brexit plan, economically?
1: If only there were a plan, David. I mean, I've looked at the UK economy for a long time, um you know, I was looking at it back at UBS. so I mean you know I've lost my hair um, looking at the u k economy um and I have to say that right now the challenges for it are pretty substantial. Um, you know, I think we're dealing with two huge uh, shocks that are playing uh, into one another. We've obviously got brexit, um which I think has raised a lot of angst amongst economists um and then we've obviously had the the pandemic over the course of the last twelve to eighteen months, which has been handled i think uh, probably not as well as it should have been from a, from an economic perspective and it's had a bigger negative impact um, i think at least as far as the short term is concerned obviously most people have focused on the pandemic and i think that's probably yeah. right i mean we had a big drop in gdp last year close to 10% one of the worst of the major economies and i think that probably tells you that the initial uh, objective of the government to try and keep things open uh, to try and minimize the impact of the lockdown didn't work and we ended up with tighter lockdowns and bigger Hits to GDP than we might have anticipated at the start. Um, I think the other element that we've had to bear in mind is that the UK obviously had to put in a big fiscal stimulus to compensate for that, um, and that stimulus was huge. Not just because the scale of the hit to GDP was huge, but also because you know after twenty or thirty years of of, of making the welfare system more parsimonious. Oh, um, I like the word you know, you, parsimonious. Well, there you go, indeed. Um, <laughs> you know you, you 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 had to be very generous to try and prevent the 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 doom loop as we call it from you know big hits to household income jobs uh, feeding back into the broader economy
0: so just explain uh, and, that, explain and, that doom loop idea to me explain that doom well, loop well i think i think fundamentally
1: you know what we have seen in in the uk economy over the last 20 30 years is a big rise in household indebtedness and mm-hmm. that's fine Provided that the assets secured against that indebtedness are still going up, and to a large extent, house prices have been. And it's also fine provided that you know consumers have the wherewithal to keep paying the debt. Uh, and obviously, you know, the crucial thing there is that they stay in jobs, uh, and that interest yeah. rates don't go up too much. Uh, and actually, in the UK, thankfully, uh, over the course of the last 12 months, the government has enabled com- uh, consumers to keep paying their mortgages. Without that stimulus effect, uh, I think there'd have probably been a bit a bigger challenge for the UK economy. You'd have seen a bigger threat to household balance sheets. You'd have seen a bigger problem in terms of managing the household debt. Uh, you could well have seen a problem in the housing market. If anything, um, the housing market has been even stronger. Consumers have been even stronger than we might've expected. And I think that just shows the generosity of the fiscal stimulus that the government put in place.
0: Now, just explain that to me, because a lot of people before, it's the same end result here on the housing market, but I'm not sure the dynamic is the same, which is, had you told me the economy was going to be put into hibernation, people are going to be told, look, you're going to be sitting at home for ages, your wages will be cut, but they'll be maintained by the state. People said, well, the first thing to go, obviously, house prices will fall. But in the UK, they've risen. What's What's going on?
1: I think what's going on is that, you know, People have benefited from, um, obviously, the government support, the government paying their wages for a significant chunk of the economy. Um, but also, I think it's about, um, in an environment of the pandemic, when you've not been able to spend on restaurants or hotels or holidays or anything like that, that service sector spending, which is a large chunk of consumption for most people in the UK, has just gone. And so people have had to re refocus their spending on other stuff so durable goods have been flying off the shelves um obviously there's a big issue in terms of the supply of those durable goods whether it's cars or bikes or fridges or whatever you think of you know washing machines uh you know there have been big sort of supply issues with that so even if you wanted to spend huge amounts of money on that kind of stuff and it's been very strong there's been a supply issue and so ultimately people have been buying houses which is what they always tend to do in the uk and i've been amazed at the robustness of the housing market over the last 12 to 18 months i've been frankly amazed by it and then it's been helped by the fact that you know part of the fiscal stimulus that we saw wasn't just about keeping incomes in people's pockets but it was also about trying to juice up the housing market and and you know last year we saw this cut in stamp duty which is the big sort of transaction tax here in the UK on housing and i think that had a very very significant Powerful effect at the lower end of the market. I mean, it was most important uh, for those houses, uh, which we no longer have in London. Um, you know, somewhere between two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand sterling. Um, those houses have just been flying off shelves, if you like, because the stamp duty has gone to zero on those transactions.
0: So, Robert, you know, as we speak, it's kind of disturbingly similar to the economy that you and I lived in the UK in the nineties. Still, very much. Bias towards jaundiced by the housing market, consumption. The Brexit plan is about global Britain, from what I can gather. What you're painting the picture is a, an economy still very heavily wedded to the non-traded local sector. Can you explain the? the, the, the I mean, I, I know you said that there is no real Brexit plan, but to the extent that there is one, what what is it? The economic plan behind Brexit.
1: I think that's where you. You're right. There is a big inconsistency here. And I, I, and I see this. I think if I wanted to rationalize what the Brexit plan was, and again, you're right, there is no plan. But if I wanted to say what was Brexit about, what I think Brexit was about, if you wanted to sort of talk about it in, in economic terms, what you'd say is that the business model that the UK had from around about 1980 through to around about 2010 was effectively one of becoming the financial center to the EU. Um, that was the Thatcher game plan, and it was uh, brought to its logical conclusion by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, which is that the UK effectively gives up on manufacturing, um, and it becomes the financial centre for the EU, and it does all of the financial services that yep. the EU can't and won't do itself. Uh, and obviously, you know, Germany becomes the manufacturing powerhouse. Italy and France become the sort of tourist centers, if you like. I simplify, obviously. Yeah,
0: no, but it's, um, it's, it's good. But, in but it's that yeah. kind of model. Yeah. Uh,
1: and so there was this big trade-off where the UK just becomes, and we, we, we saw this firsthand at UBS, You know, the, U, the, the UK becomes very, very big in financial services. So financial services grows much more rapidly than the rest of the economy uh, and becomes a very substantial part of the UK economy. And at the same time, uh, as well as that kind of financialization, there's obviously a big focus on consumer spending as a motor to growth. Yeah. And it's obviously helped by the fact that there are lots of people like us who were consuming heavily in the, in the 80s and 90s, and that sort of drove the model. And it was also helped by the fact that the financial services sector was a big source of tax revenues. So it's generating lots of tax revenue. And people like Gordon Brown could then take that tax revenue and direct it into other parts of the economy that were doing less well. So places like Scotland, Northern Ireland, the north of England got injections of cash effectively paid for by the financial services sector i think the brexit vote was a whether it was a whether it was an explicitly acknowledged end to that it was something that drew a line under and said no more we've we've gone as far as we can with this financial model and it might have been uh, the rational response to the global financial crisis which obviously did expose i think the uk's reliance on financial services and i think it does mean that A lot of people in this country just became a little bit uh, disgruntled with an economy that was becoming increasingly run for one particular sector. And obviously, that did become very concentrated in the southeast of England. London and the southeast were booming, and everywhere else was not doing very well. And if you look at sort of regional measures of uh, income, GDP per capita or household income per capita, you can see that there was this big gap between London and the southeast and everywhere else. And the gap is massive. I mean, I think the EU did some analysis a couple of years ago suggesting that the gap between London and the rest of the UK was far bigger than any other uh, regional disparity in any other major country in the EU including places like Germany and France and so on. And, And that just became untenable. So Brexit was about trying to narrow that gap. Okay. and obviously boris johnson has articulated it in terms of levelling up the poorer regions but i think implicitly or perhaps increasingly explicitly there's also this acknowledgement that part of that means that financial services and consumption has to shrink as a share as an overall share of the economy so okay. we we become less reliant on financial services less reliant on consumption so that was the brexit plan now obviously that's fine except that you know what you're still doing to get through the pandemic, for instance, is you're having to juice the consumer, you're having to juice the financial services sector, because that's where you can get the growth quite quickly. And so there is this inconsistency between the sort of long term project that is Brexit, yep. trying to rebalance the economy away from this reliance on financial services, to the fact that in the short term, in response to the pandemic, you actually quite like the idea that financial services provide you this motor to growth. And that's, I think, an inconsistency that we're still going to be wrestling with over the next few years.
0: Now, traditionally, Rob, because I think you've put it really well, when I was looking at the UK economy, certainly up until, in that let's, let's talk historically, that sort of 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, the currency always betrayed the economy, or at least the currency was the canary in the coal mine. Sterling always moved quickly, and if there was this inconsistency that we speak of, usually sterling would have fallen, interest rates would have risen, and there would have been a short-term currency crisis. And that's the way in which the economy, or at least the financial sector, screamed at the economy that something is wrong. How will it play out this time?
1: Well, that's an issue I'm scratching my head about right now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to get my head around this because you're right. I mean, I was, I was brought up in, in economics at the same time as you, David. We're the same age. So I'm, I'm exactly used to that sort of playbook for the UK. And it goes right back, you know, to the post-war era. We have been devaluing the pound every few years because that's the me- that's the that's yeah. the method that we use to keep things going. But obviously, it does generate a bit of instability. That did change, and it's interesting, you know, if you look at Sterling's index, it changed with, and I won't draw any um, political correlation, but it changed with the Tony Blair government in the mid-1990s. You know, we had the big Sterling devaluation in the early 1990s, Black Wednesday leaving the ERM. Uh, That was the last sort of really big Sterling devaluation. And then we had this strengthening of Sterling in the mid-1990s, which kind of coincided with the arrival of Blair. And that sort of ran all the way through to the global financial crisis. You had a bit of a, a drop in Sterling after the global financial crisis, because we were heavily exposed. And then Sterling sort of stabilized. And then really, I think it was right up until the Brexit vote that Sterling remained remarkably strong yes um and actually i would say that you know that's part of the reason why this financial services model seemed to be working because you know sterling was strong um obviously a stronger currency makes a country feel that its its living standards are improving absolutely yeah uh, and indeed they were um and so in that sense you know a uh, stronger sterling was an indicator that things were going well for the uk at least if you looked at the aggregate macro numbers it didn't pick up this sort of uh, regional disparity in incomes. It didn't pick up this growing inequality issue that was to become so important in the, in the Brexit vote. And that, I think, is is where we now are. Now, I think the, the ultimate question, and I argue this with my colleagues uh, every day, is now that we're outside the EU and we've lost this motor of financial services, what does that mean about Sterling? Uh, does it mean that sterling needs to weaken? Because certainly, if we want to go back to trying to boost manufacturing, if we want to go back to trying to do the things that the UK used to do sort of pre-Thatcher and Blair, then you probably need to see a significant drop in the pound. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's where I certainly think that could be very important from you know this whole argument about whether we'll see inflation over the course of the next five to 10 years uh, in any economy. I think you know one country that I worry about most is the UK, because I think one way in which we've often responded to these economic problems is by putting the pound down. And that obviously then brings in the inflation. Yeah. And that would be something that I, that I worry about now. And I, I sense the Bank of England, the Treasury are equally just as worried about that. So if we want to avoid that, we need to generate some other source of growth, or we at least need to keep financial services growing pretty strongly. And that's where I have an issue, particularly after the Brexit vote, because, you know, it seems to me that we've kind of turned away from the the industry that was doing fantastically well, which is financial services. And we're trying to create strength in other industries. And I think, as most economists know, that can't be done in a few yeah. years. And, and that is the work of a long time, it's a, work a generation. Of, it's a
0: work of a long time. It's a work of luck, you know, serendipity. Yeah. You know, sometimes things come together you don't expect, there's also the fear, particularly in manufacturing and pretty high-end manufacturing, that you're actually too far behind in a certain stage. You know, you, actually, yep. you, you can't just reinvent this. But can I come back to the financial services? Because I want to broaden it out uh, into the regions in a second. But the financial services, you know, has the European Union any incentive to do a deal with the United Kingdom on financial services that would enable the United Kingdom to remain Europe's banker?
1: Only in the short term, if if at all, if at all i mean i think you know the 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 key issue is obviously you know london has been so dominant and it's got such a depth of skill sets that there are bits of the business that if you just plucked it out of london um it will be very difficult to replicate anywhere else but i do think what's going on and you know dublin has been a beneficiary of this you know i was i saw this firsthand a couple of years ago when i was when i was last there you know you saw dublin uh, taking some of london's business I think Amsterdam has taken some of London's business. I think Paris has taken some of London's business, even Frankfurt. Now, had you said that to me five or six years ago, I'd have been skeptical. But what I think what's happening here is that, you know, there is no one city that can just take over London's role. And I don't think London will sort of close down as a financial services sector. It's, you know, it's been a, a great financial sector, a financial services center for hundreds of, of centuries, hundreds of years. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that doesn't go. And I don't think you know the, the benefits of having this deep bench of skilled people doing that kind of business uh, will disappear um, completely. But I do think that at the margin, what will happen is that we will lose various bits of business. Whereas there was this huge sort of gravitational pull into London, I think now it starts to become a little bit more spinning things out
0: yeah, no, um, it's 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 fascinating. We had Andy Haldane of the Bank of England, well, soon to be ex Bank of England. And I think he's from the same neck of the woods as you are. I think he's yep, Yorkshire, yep. up that neck of the yep. woods. Uh, and he was again making this point that this is this is the dilemma for the UK. cannot it's it's a dilemma for the UK more than other countries simply because London has got so huge. Okay, but yep. look, Ireland's the same. Dublin sucks in half GDP of this country, et cetera, et cetera. And but we do seem to have a much more generous redistributive state in terms yep. of in terms of how the money gets sloshed back into the rest of the country. We talked about sterling there. So for about 30 years, sterling was the canary in the coal mine. To what extent is Scottish nationalism the sterling of the future? So when things go wrong, do you see where I'm going with this? Yep, yep. I mean, I,
1: th- I, I, I certainly think that is probably a major concealed risk at the moment. Um, so let's talk and about I think, it. I, th- I, th- I think it's concealed because it's something that we don't want to talk about. Um, and it's interesting that... Uh, when the scottish nationalists try to talk about independence the response that they get from westminster is effectively the kinds of arguments that the remainers used to use in the brexit vote which is why would you want to leave this big single market why would you want to lose the trading relationship with your biggest trading partner and all of that we know uh, makes a lot of economic sense but equally once you start talking about the passion of independence and this kind of burning desire for autonomy, which I have no doubt many Scots feel. And I think increasingly, you know, in a country like the UK where their voice is being drowned out by, you know, a, a, a significantly different uh, political agenda, I can understand why there would be that, that um, attraction of independence. And I think that's, that's, I think, a big risk for the UK. I think what we're finding here is that the government here is focused on trying to shore up uh, the regions of the English uh, provinces that have suffered the most from this very unbalanced economic growth we've just been talking about. But I think what they haven't done is to recognize that Scotland is a key part of that. The Scots have a very different sense of their attachment to the EU. They have a very different sense of the causes of their issues and problems than, say, the English northern regions do. Um, and the government in Westminster hasn't addressed that particularly well. And so I think this is just going to be a question of when rather than if we get to this moment of decision. And I do think, you know, that there are now increasing risks around the, the stability of the United Kingdom in a way that perhaps uh, there weren't previously. Okay. And that's not to say that, you know, Scottish independence will be an easy thing to effect. There's all the questions about a customs border at, you know, Hadrian's Wall. There's the yeah. question about what currency they'd use. There's a question about how you divvy up uh, the debts that Scotland has. There's a question of Scotland's own fiscal position, particularly if you abstract from North Sea oil. All those kinds of questions sure. are obviously very important, but they were very important in the Brexit debate, and they didn't seem to have much of an impact. If you feel quite strongly that there's something else that you really want to register here, and I, I, I shouldn't, I don't think we should underestimate the strength of feeling in Scotland about that sense of autonomy and self-determination.
0: Well, I mean, the thing is, it's, uh, you know, we know as Irish people, it's an incredibly attractive, it's an urge that peoples have. And it's very, very clear that in 1921, had you put a balance sheet argument up to Ireland and well, off you go, but you're going to be pretty much poverty stricken. For a long time, that would have been a accurate and b people didn't care. That's the interesting thing. Yeah, you know that's the yep. funny, and it, it actually came yep. to pass. We, we, we had fifty years of chaos here uh, before we figured out how the hell we're going to manage the balance sheet side of nationalism, but the emotional side was very, very simple and very, a very easy, easy sell. And I think right now you'd never find any Irish person now say, "Well, I think we should go back in the UK." Although certain, the Northern Northern Ireland unions seem to have that bizarre idea, but I'm going to keep Northern Ireland aside because that's a quagmire that we, we don't want to get into. We'll get into it on our own, right? But let's just come to that, you know, before we go, that risk case of Scotland. What happens economically in terms of mainstream economics if we wake up in two, three, four, five years' time? There has been a referendum. It's been close, but the nationalists win by 51 to 49 or 52 to 48, so it's tight nowhere near where the polls are at the moment. What happens the next day?
1: I think you probably see something similar to what we saw here. You know, I think there'll be a very powerful knee-jerk reaction to, you know, uh, a situation that would be perceived as negative. Uh, obviously, then I think there's the discussion about how you start to unpick this uh, model, which is actually, you know, I mean, it's it's been here for 300 years rather than the yeah. uh, the uh, the 50 years we were we what were in it? the eu 1707 so or something un, like that it's un- a long time yeah Unpicking that exactly yeah. Unpicking that is is a huge challenge and i don't think that would be easy and i think you know there are lots of issues and questions that it would raise but i do think it would increase the perceived risk on uk assets because i think it does start to look as if things could you know i mean how long is it before I mean, it seems, um, you know, as if this is completely unrealistic, but if you were to talk about Scottish independence, how long is it before you start to talk about London becoming, uh, arguing that it's a a state that should be independent? I mean, you know, we we have a situation where London's political color looks very different from many of the English provinces that surround it. And that's the reflection of London's peculiarity and so on. But it does mean that, you know, uh, where do you where do you stop this fragmentation of the uk and it does raise very important considerations i think for the future of the united kingdom because in a sense you know part of the reason why we've managed to conceal this is because i mean in a way my interpretation of of the eu is that it was kind of like a, a way of covertly redistributing from london to the rest of the uk without either London or the rest of the UK fully realizing that's what was going on. Explain, and that to me. Explain that to me. Well, I think you know in in effect if you if you said to the average Londoner, you know, you are paying your taxes so that lots of people in Scotland or the north of England can receive huge finan- fiscal largesse. I think people in London particularly a large number of expats who worked for financial services companies might have drawn the line at that and said why why are we doing this? At least if it's uh, redirected through EU structural funds um, and cohesion funds, then that makes a, a big difference. I mean, my old region back in Yorkshire was a big recipient of um, EU funds because it was very poor. And that was done uh, effectively by taking tax revenue from London and obviously other wealthy areas in the EU and redirecting it uh, into yeah. Yorkshire. There was absolutely, you know, no recognition of that in the Brexit vote. You know, my 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 hometown in Yorkshire voted to to leave the EU without recognizing that it had been a big beneficiary of that kind of cash, and I think that inevitably means that, you know, at some point, um, the richer region starts to say, "Well, well, what are we doing this for?" And particularly once it becomes explicit that the rich region is effectively bankrolling other poorer regions. And, you know, it's it's an issue we can see in the EU at the moment, you know, with with Germany and and Italy. But, you know, I think it's at least you can understand there that there's a kind of cultural difference across countries that might be challenging. Um, In the UK, we've always had this strong sense that there was a kind of unified um, national culture. If you have Scotland and, and London arguing about whether, you know, you should have fiscal transfers between those two regions and what are the benefits of those fiscal transfers, then it just becomes uh, ultimately, a relationship that's going to break down.
0: Yeah, no, it's pastor John. you John is John Hi. because John is obviously a property owner in London. He's, oh, very, indeed, worried, yeah. he's very worried about his one bedroom flat <laughs> down in Fulham.
2: <laughs> uh, Roberts, I know your expertise also lies in mining. Um, I didn't realise you'd gold stocks, Davis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where's all the gold at? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a stash of copper under his bed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But Robert, uh, you mentioned there a little earlier that part of the the long-term plan for Brexit was to, in some way, go back to a kind of a pre-Thatcher economy. But back then in the, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, coal mining played a significant part of the economy insofar as kind of fueling manufacturing, steelworks, et cetera, et cetera. So what's the long-term view of rebalancing north and south without a coal mining industry to support it?
1: Great question. I mean, my dad voted for Brexit. I mean, he still lives in Yorkshire. He lives in Doncaster, and he voted for Brexit. And I asked him why, and he said, it's because we want the steel industry to come back to Doncaster, Sheffield, Rotherham. And I had to explain to him that the reason why there was no steel industry in those places is not because of the EU, but because of what China had effectively done in terms of creating a steel industry that could effectively do what Europe did at much lower cost. You know, And I remember five or six years ago visiting the biggest um, steel blast furnace uh, in the world in Shanghai and seeing the extent to which they were producing steel. And, you know, you have to say that once you'd seen that, you realize why um, small steelworks in the UK, other parts of Europe just were not, they didn't, they didn't make any sense. And I guess, you know, the question for me still now, when the UK talks about trying to reinvigorate manufacturing is, well, what are you going to do? Because the kind of manufacturing that generates lots of jobs for, uh, you know, people like my dad, uh, who started out. In a manufacturing company, um, just don't exist anymore. I mean, they've they've been they've been uh, offshored to places like China, um, and arguably even China is now starting to reduce the number of workers that that are actually directly involved in manufacturing. So I think it's a bit naive to assume that we can reconstitute manufacturing industry and bring the jobs back to the UK. I think there was mm. at least a part of Brexit that was about that. I think certainly that was something that. My dad felt quite strongly, but I think it's just naive and probably a little bit old-fashioned to believe that you can bring those industries back. They've gone, they've gone for good. And I, I and I think you know the danger still is that actually, rather than reviving manufacturing, we see what we have left in the UK increasingly moving to Asia and China. You know, I mean, I, I take the car industry. You know, it's it's bizarre to me that we still have a car manufacturing industry uh, in the UK. You know, think about. Jaguar Land Rover, um, it would seem to me that, you know, over the next five to 10 years, it's almost inevitable that most of those production facilities will, will move eastwards. I'm not sure they'll necessarily go to China, but it would seem to me that if you're trying to generate a market uh, in China, you at least need to have significant production facilities. And it's a kind of, you know, replication of what we've seen in in parts of the, the, the broader European car industry. So I think that's the I think that's the structural challenge for anybody trying to bring manufacturing mm. back. And, and then you're left with, okay, well, maybe we'll do high value added manufacturing. Well, the problem with high value added manufacturing, you know, think about the stuff we've got left in the UK, um, is that it only really employs a tiny number of people. You know, we it just it just isn't sort of mass employment creating jobs. You know, it's the, the, the industry that we would feasibly still have here doesn't generate jobs on the scale. That we used to have. Those jobs have, have gone, and I suspect they're not coming back.
0: So just before you go then, I mean, what is the five-year view of the UK or the 10-year view? Let's say when the when, you know, because Brexit is a national project, and I can see in the UK as well the same sort of nationalist nationalistic enthusiasm for the project, right? And irrespective of what we're talking about in economics. It's like we've taken back control, we're waving the flag, we're back in control, et cetera. That wanes after a while. That kind of dissipates. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like winning, a, winning a championship. After a while, you've got to go play the next league and play the next year and face new opposition, et cetera. What's your sense of where the UK goes in the next five years? I
1: think we're going to be casting around for a role. I think we are, you know, we, in the Thatcher era, in the Blair era, we became the financial center to Europe. We're now turning our back on that. Um, but obviously, in the process of becoming the financial centre to Europe, we effectively outsourced huge amounts of stuff that we previously did—manufacturing, um, uh, coal mining, whatever you like—you know—that yeah. kind of stuff just just got outsourced. If not to the EU, then it got outsourced to China, other countries around the world. And that's sort of natural economic progression. That's what happens. Um, the problem that the UK's had is that we've had this dependence on one particular industry. You know, we're not like the US where we have a huge continental-sized economy, which is relatively diverse. You know, we've become increasingly specialised. And I guess that's an element of being a member of the EU. You're a, small co- you're a relatively small country in a much bigger block. And so therefore, there's this pressure to specialise. And actually, it's fine if you can specialise. But obviously, once you pull yourself out of the EU, um, that specialisation looks a little bit odd. Yes, uh, And I do think that there is going to be a sort of crisis Uh, of uh, what it is that the UK thinks it can and should do from an economic perspective. And I'm sure there will be something that turns up. Uh, I'm just not sure what it will be. Um, We used to be the world's manufacturing hub. Uh, Then we became this huge financial services hub. I'm not sure what the next step will be. There's a lot of talk of, you know, green transition and, you know, uh, the, the, the tech hub. Um, around uh, around uh, London, I'm not sure that that is going to generate the kinds of jobs on a scale that will be sufficient to to generate uh, widespread economic growth. So I do think you know that the UK is going to have a significant problem over the next five to ten years to rethink its economic model. Um, and that is the challenge that I think many governments have struggled with. and ultimately, Uh, in the face of that struggle, they've tended to take the line of least resistance, which is just to say, okay, why don't we just continue to do financial services and and, and at least they'll generate tax revenue and that'll allow us to fund other stuff. If we genuinely are seeing a turning away from that, it's not clear to me that there's an obvious other industry that can take up uh, the running and can can replace financial services. However uh, dreadful you think it is as 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 an industry, Um, whatever your moral position is, the fact is that it's been a key part of the UK economy for the last 30 years. If you turn your back against it, it's not obvious that there's a a clear replacement. What would replace it? Who knows?
0: And then all the political nationalist ideas stem from that. They flow from that. Because clearly, you know, if if you're able to gel the country together with a surplus of cash from one place, and at least dollop that cash elsewhere, it uh, reduces the yearning to go independent. but When that cash dissipates, suddenly you, you are in that, that loop we spoke about, maybe not doom, but different loop.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, it, it's like this whole thing with leveling up. I mean, I, I, I admire it as, a, as an idea, certainly as someone who used to live in, in a part of the country that needs to be leveled up. I think I would say that the cost of that is likely to be much greater than any government can realistically spend. Because I do think these areas have, have lost a huge amount of economic activity, the closure of the coal mines, the closure of the steel industry. That's been gone for 30 or 40 years. You know, to, rev- to revive these areas is going to take hundreds of billions of pounds, not just billions. And I do think that that's going to be a real challenge for any government to concentrate those kinds of resources, obviously, especially if you don't have an easy source of revenue. And so I, I think the, you know, this is going to be a big challenge for a government that is talking about leveling up, that's talking about building back better. It obviously does raise a question mark about where the money comes from. It might well be that rather than paying for it through economic growth and tax revenues, you end up just borrowing an are, increasing are, amount.
0: Are a sort of a UK, before we go, Robert, because a, a UK version of MMT? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think if any country in the world embraces the need for, Actually, you know, money financed fiscal policy, then I think it, it could well be the UK. It we'll, could well be the UK.
0: we we'll leave it there, Robert. Listen, great to talk to you again. Uh, now the problem and to is you, David. Good to see you've you. You've played yourself into the first 11. You'll be on all the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, great no, to see you, David. Thanks, it's great to
0: see you. Cheers. Take care, Robert. Cheers.
1: Don't... Cheers, John. Bye. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
2: All these guys that we've had on the podcast over the last two years that spoke about Brexit—they've all been asked. All these about,
0: people, like, all these people I worked with in various yeah, incarnations yeah, yeah. before I got kicked out of that job and that <laughs> job and that job. But
2: we we've asked them all. So, what's your take on Brexit? What's the plan? And not one of these experts have a clue what the plan is. So it appears, in fairness, that nobody has there is a, no
0: plan. Yeah. No, I think that like Robert Lind is one of the really top-end. He was great. Really really top-end UK economist and has been for many, many years. All around good guy, good egg. And I'd I'd forgotten how clear his thinking was and how broad it was, you know, because you haven't seen the guy for years. But it was a joy to listen to him. There is no plan. Mm. And I think what he's basically saying is not only is there there no plan, there's a sort of a punt, there's a hope that something will turn up. Yeah. But that idea that the UK was this heavily leveraged bet on finance and financial markets and was going to be Europe's investment bank. And that generated all the income and all the tax revenue and all the vibrancy. And then that was percolated down to the regions and that was the gelling agent of the UK. Yeah, That is an interesting way to look at it because if you turn your back for nationalist reasons on the cow, or no, sorry, you turn your back for nationalist reasons on the golden goose that's laying the eggs, it's very hard to see where they're going to actually level up
2: either from or to. Well, that was the bit that really got to me, you know, since they've built such a, a strong financial center, and that was the UK's position in the world yeah. primarily. The way he was saying is kind of dialing that down in order to dial up something. something unknown.
0: Up- <laughs> something unknown. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, industrial strategy is a long term play. And in you know the way in Ireland, we, we get upset about multinationals and people say they should pay more tax and they should do all this. All these arguments are legitimate. However, it is a model. Mm. That's the interesting. It is a model that works, that you attract in capital from other countries, you make it cheap, you tax it low, you attract in workers and talent and creativity from other countries, yeah. you allow them to work here. And together, that creates a new dynamism which propels the economy forward. Now, maybe we're at the tail end of that model. Who knows, right? Yeah. But it's clearly the case that the UK need to come up with a plan. And I think they might be caught in this. I think the reason Ireland came up with a plan is our back was against the wall. Yeah. 1970s, 1960s Ireland, you know, there was nowhere to go except figure something else. And we figured it out in the 80s when we had mass immigration or emigration and it started to work, right? Ironically, John, the UK needs another crisis before it actually realises that it doesn't have a plan. And that crisis could come quite soon. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments... Our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, to our Patreons, thank you so much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David McQuilliams.